Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 42, Revelation, Shaking the Heavens. And the following is a sermon that I preached December 2nd of 2018 during the season of Advent, which are the few weeks leading up to celebration of the birth of Jesus. And I was preaching on Luke chapter 21, where Jesus references some very powerful, very cosmic language that in our terms would be something that would sound like end time ideas. And this sermon I've chosen to insert here because I want us to pay particular attention to the way Jesus reshapes our ideas of the end time, particularly as it relates to the fact that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told that in Jesus, we have been brought to the new creation already. And so this sermon will help tie some themes together for you, and I hope that it is really, really helpful as we begin to jump into the book of Revelation. I know many of you are very eager for me to begin to actually address the text in the book of Revelation itself, and I promise you we will get there. But before we do, there is a topic that I think is really, really crucial for you to grasp in order to be able to understand most clearly what it is that we are reading in the book of Revelation, as well as some helpful questions we want to be asking as we read so that our eyes are directed toward the very types of things that John is presenting us with. And one of the things that I realize needs to happen before we are most suited to that task is to recognize that when terms like the end or the last days or end times and those types of languages, we realize that when Jesus spoke about the future, he rarely spoke about it in isolation from the present. And so actually all through Jesus' teaching, the two, the present and the future, overlap quite a bit. And this is actually not uncommon. Um, The prophets themselves and the messages that they gave in the Old Testament about either the coming judgment or salvation of both God's people and their enemies was always a mixture of present-day fulfillment and the kind of fulfillment that most listeners assumed was still a long way off. And I'm aware of the fact that there are entire schools of thought about eschatology or about the study of the end times. And there are some groups that think that the entirety of what Jesus was talking about in the first century has already happened in the first century. And then there are others who think that all of what Jesus was talking about is still yet future to even our day. And there are whole groups of people who find themselves firmly rooted in one of those two camps or some type of a mixture of the two. And so what I want to do today, without even touching the book of Revelation, I want to address Jesus talking about some of these end time ideas and allow what Jesus says in the context in which he says it to help reshape the way we think about the last days or the end times. Now, as I shared in the introductory episode to the Revelation series, any discussion of prophecy from the moment of Jesus onward has to primarily focus its attention on the one who has brought us the terms of the new covenant. So we're really wanting to focus in on Jesus, which again is why I want to preach and share with you a sermon I preached where Jesus himself is talking about the the end times in this cosmic language. 
And as I also shared in the introductory episode, since prophecy is simply a call to return to the terms of the covenant, you and I need to be asking as we read the book of Revelation, what are the terms of the covenant and how was it exactly that Jesus Christ brought the new covenant into being? Those are really, really helpful questions because we have a tendency today, and I'll say we, because you read a book like Revelation and our natural inclination is to think futuristic, scary, I hope we're not around when all of this happens. Those types of ideas, our natural bent is to view it as predictions of the future. I personally take great encouragement in recognizing that I'm not alone in thinking that it was predictions of the future because even Jesus' own disciples were preoccupied with when. I don't know if you remember, but after Jesus was raised from the dead, he spent many days with his disciples teaching them additional things about the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 1, in verse 6, the disciples say to Jesus, Is it at this time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, and so it's apparent that discussions of the future and the orchestrating of timelines and the piecing together of current events with all the sci-fi interpretations of the strange visions that apparently go with them, these are things that have always occupied people's minds. They clearly are occupying the modern mind, but they also occupied the minds of the disciples. And so this idea is very deeply ingrained into lots of different people. It's very common for people to think that prophecy has to do solely with end time visions. But what's really, really helpful in Acts chapter 1 is to listen to Jesus' response to his disciples' question. And Jesus basically says, don't concern yourself with the timeline. But what he says to them in verse 8 is crucial. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now this is Jesus' response. It's twofold. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The power that the Holy Spirit desires to give to you that you will be um, given by him is for the purpose of being my witnesses. You see, the thrust of the book of Revelation is on how God intends to replace the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. One kingdom is being shaken and a new one is being set up in its place. And so the focus of Jesus' words in the sermon that you are about to hear is on this shaking. Jesus uses cosmic language, which sounds strange to our ears, but I hope looking at his words in context will help you to understand what shaking the heavens actually means. Now you may still have questions after listening to this sermon. That's great. I encourage you, as always, to email me and ask me those questions. You may not understand everything I'm saying. You may not agree with everything I'm saying. That is also fine. I am simply inserting this sermon here because you simply will not be able to understand the book of Revelation without grasping the way the Bible speaks when using end-time language, without grasping that we live right now in what is called an overlap of the ages in an already but not yet reality. 
We will have plenty of other episodes to explore these themes, how they work out, what a Christian's response should be to all of them. This particular episode will just help us get off to a good start. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a moment and just listen to this sermon, Shaking the Heavens, and what it teaches you about the way that in Jesus, Jesus reworks the ideas of end times. Because what you'll grasp here is going to be absolutely central and a great illuminator to begin to understand what John is talking about in the book of Revelation. So just sit back and listen, shaking the heavens. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, give us ears to hear you this morning so that we might recognize your voice and be willing to give up all to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the summer of 2015, our three kids participated in the Turnage Theater's children's production of the musical Annie, and they absolutely knocked it out of the park. It was beautifully done, and in three weeks' time, they went from not knowing a thing to learning all of their songs. They were each given a sing-along CD to bring home, and so, of course, our family has three of them, and there are literally three of them going on in different parts of the house where the kids are learning the lines to their songs, the lyrics to the music, even Jessica and I got to know most of the songs. And if you've ever seen the film, Annie, you might know some of the songs too. Maybe. It's a Hard Knock Life, Easy Street, and of course, Tomorrow. Now, I took my cues from Jessica this week, and I will not sing for you the song Tomorrow, but I will read it because it's pertinent to what we're talking about here. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, oh, the sun will come out tomorrow. So you got to hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. Now, it's so much better than if I would have sung it. Now, 
what may seem to be nothing more than a cute little children's song is actually something far more profound. Something the world of the Bible simply assumes, but many people today, even sometimes Christians, don't grasp. And it is this. Heaven and the earth are connected. You see, here on earth, we take our cues from the heavens. The sun reigns in the heavens. And so when you see the heavens and you see the sun on the earth, you can know that tomorrow is going to be maybe a better day. Now, it's always been this way. As human beings, we were created to rule over the earth in the same way that the sun and moon were created to rule over the heavens. I'm not sure if your last time of reading through Genesis 1 you ever picked up on that. But the same verb is used to describe both what the sun and the moon do in the heavens and what human beings do on the earth. As Christians, one of our greatest prayers is that God will, God's will would be carried out on earth as it is in heaven. We will say that prayer together later this morning. We pray such prayers because right now the earth is not following heaven's lead. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that Jesus has come to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Here on earth, we take our cues from the heavens. Orphan Annie's life on earth was uncertain, lonely, and sad. And she took great comfort in knowing that the one thing she could count on was that the sun would come out tomorrow. And that surety was only ever one day away. But today, you and I take our cues from the heavens as well. Lamentations 3 tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. What brings the morning? The rising of the sun in the heavens. Great is your faithfulness. Such promises get us out of bed each morning, for without them, our lives, like Annie's, would be uncertain, lonely, sad, or worse. So how would you handle the news that everything you've come to count on in this world was going to end? What would you hold on to if something as basic as the sun coming out each morning could no longer be counted on? Or think about it like this. Remember the feelings you experienced when Hurricane Florence was headed straight for us before she shifted course do Jesus' words in Luke 21 about nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves take on any new significance for you? In other words, what do you cling to when all that you know is threatened? This is the scene Jesus is describing in our gospel reading this morning from Luke 21. So if you have a Bible, and I would invite you this time, if no other Sunday, to actually pick one up because we're going to be flipping all over it and you're going to need to have fast thumbs and a bright mind or get your phone out, right, and have a couple different tabs open and then you can check it all out. What I want you to do this morning, though, is I want you to open it up to a few chapters before. I want you to open it up to Luke 19, because context is everything, and we don't have the time for me to stand up here and read three chapters for our gospel reading, although maybe some Sunday we will, just for fun, because the context is crucial. I want you to see the context into which Jesus is giving us these words about there being signs and sun and moon and stars and these roaring of the seas. 
Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as soon as he does, in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, we read this. Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And here is what he says in the middle of this prayer that he cries out while he is weeping. Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The tragic irony of Jesus' cry is that the name Jerusalem, Yeru Shalom, actually means the Shalom of God. That is what the name Jerusalem means. Shalom. It's a Hebrew word, and it just means the abundant flourishing that results when God, his human community, and his creation are in right relationship and intimate communion with one another. In a word, it means peace. But the city of Jerusalem, the city of God's shalom, the city of peace is not a place of peace at all. Jerusalem, Jesus tells us two verses later, did not know the time of her visitation. They did not recognize God's shalom when they saw Jesus and now found themselves actually getting in the way of God's peace instead of his means of spreading it. And so Jesus confronts their failure head on. He starts by entering their temple and driving out those selling in it, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, Israel, all through the Old Testament, had turned God's blessings into a way of blessing themselves. And Jesus knows that nothing destroys God's shalom quicker than a self-serving agenda. He is the bringer of peace. And so he confronts everything that opposes it. And then at the beginning of chapter 21, which is our passage for this morning, if you want to flip to that, in response to some people admiring the beauty of the temple and drawing Jesus' attention to that beauty, Jesus says this to them. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? The rest of Luke chapter 21 is Jesus' answer to that question. He speaks of signs in sun, moon, and stars and the nations of the earth in confusion because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. And then he goes on, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The heavens are communicating something to the earth and the earth needs to take notice. Jesus is actually referencing a handful of passages from Isaiah right here about the signs in the heavens from Isaiah, Isaiah 13, the shaking of the earth from Isaiah 19, 
and the wicked being like the tossing sea from Isaiah 57. Now, in Isaiah's context, those passages were directed toward the enemies of God, Babylon and Egypt primarily. But here, Jesus is identifying another enemy of God, his very own people. And so in a strange turn of events, Jesus applies Isaiah's judgments on the enemies of God's people to God's people themselves. Because of Jerusalem's failure to be the shalom of God, they have, in essence, become Babylon. And as such, can expect the same fate. Now, all this would be incredibly discouraging if it weren't for the fact that the Lord's ability to bless the world with His peace cannot and will not be thwarted by His unfaithful people. The heavens will still win the day. Or as King would say if he were here, we win, right? For the Lord declared through Haggai the prophet, and I just, I love reading the prophets, especially the ones that nobody knows about, because they're just these little golden chunks tucked away in places. I mean, how many of you have read the book of Haggai? Awesome, good. I see that one hand, good. <laughs> Me too. Here's what he says through the prophet Haggai. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The house that the Lord is referring to is the temple. But in order for him to fill it with glory and bring real peace to it, Israel's version of the temple and the religious system they've made it into will need to be Shaken. Okay, what in the world does that mean? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Keep your finger where you have it and turn to Hebrews 12 because Hebrews straight up answers our question. Okay, maybe that's where I got the question, but whatever, you know what I'm talking about. The author is quoting Haggai chapter 2. Well, if nobody else reads Haggai, at least the New Testament authors do, and we can be thankful for that. But in Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to start with me in verse, I believe it's verse 25. The author says this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, ah, this is Haggai chapter 2, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, you ready? Things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
So the author gives us exactly what he's talking about when he says the things that can be shaken, that is, the things that have been made. This shaking is precisely what Jesus is describing in Luke 21. The removal of things that have been made. Structures. Religious systems. Riches. Personal agendas. Selfish ambitions. Self-righteous attitudes. Human arrogance. And pride. Jesus' coming is going to shake all of it and bring it all to an end. Okay, but what does all of that have to do with Advent? Aren't we awaiting the coming of Jesus? What does all this have to do with his second coming? Well, look with me, if you would, at Luke 21, 32. Toward the end of our passage, where Jesus is describing the Son of Man coming and there being signs in sun, moon, and stars. Is Jesus describing his second coming or the completion of his first coming? Do, 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 do. We don't know. It's hard to tell. Listen to Jesus' words. I tell you, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. This generation will not pass away until all has taken place? Really? So was Jesus mistaken? The end isn't here. We're still here. The end hasn't really come, has it? Is Jesus describing the end or not? Those are the kinds of questions you want to ask as you read. But that's not exactly the best way to word that particular question. I think a better way to word that question would be to say this. Has the end somehow found its way into the present? And if you can grasp this concept, you can grasp 90% of what the New Testament is doing when it's talking about salvation, when it is talking about redemption. The answer to the question, has the end somehow found its way into the present, is, is given with a resounding yes. Everyone expected the end for there to be some final judgment and then people would be raised and they would be, be, be judged based upon their sins. Nobody was expecting one person in the middle of history to go to the end and to be judged and then to be resurrected to new life in the middle of history. From the point of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection onward, we've entered into something new. We've entered into the end. It's what the New Testament authors will repeatedly refer to as the last days. Do you know why they call it the last days? Because the end has already started. And it started with the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of all of those who will be raised with him. The end has found its way into the present. Do you remember Luke 21, 6 and 7? It's the question that Jesus' answer for the rest of the chapter, he's giving an answer to this question. Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Well, if you read the first five verses of chapter 21, you would know that these things refer to Jesus foretelling that Jerusalem's temple was going to be annihilated. 
These people are saying, look at these beautiful stones. Look at this beautiful building. He said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. It's all going to be crushed. This actually happened in 70 AD, a mere 40 years after Jesus left the earth. And you can be pretty certain that there were many, many people alive at the time of Jesus who were still alive to witness this event happen 40 years later. So then what is Jesus describing? And what relevance does it have for you and for me? What Jesus is describing is the end or the transformation of the present world order and the establishing of his eternal kingdom. The old has passed away, Paul tells us. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The new heavens and the earth, i.e. the new creation that Isaiah foretold, have, in a very real sense, already begun. And they've come about through the Son of Man, Jesus himself. Or to quote the first half of, of, of 2 Corinthians 5.17, what does Paul say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, finish it, he is a new creation. What? The end has already started? Yes, it has. And Christ is the one who cannot be shaken. And as such, all those united with Christ find that they too will be able to stand on the final day. Therefore, let us be grateful, Hebrews 12 continues, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Where this kind of acceptable worship starts, this Advent, is by asking ourselves a few questions. Are there things in my life that I am holding on to that can be shaken. The Jews were confident that because they had the temple, they had God and all the blessings that came with that regardless of how they lived. They were wrong. And Jesus had to expose many areas of their lives that were built on the, on the wrong foundation in order to bring about their redemption. You see, the Jews thought their redemption was in their temple. But what they failed to realize was that what made their temple special was that the presence of God was there. As long as you have the presence of God, you have his blessings. He brought about a destruction of their temple, but he tells them, when you see these things happen, raise your heads and look up high because your redemption is drawing near. The destruction of all that you thought was good in this world doesn't mean I will not save you. It means your salvation comes apart from that. And that's exactly what the gospel tells us. And he may very well need to bring about what to you may feel like events that signal the end of your world in order to bring about your redemption. Judgment begins, Peter tells us, with the household of God because God wants to purify his own people most of all. So don't run away from his discipline. 
Don't get defensive when your sin and selfishness is pointed out to you. Because when it looks like everything you know and all you've ever held onto are being taken away, it is at that time that you are to make yourself ready for your redemption. For the Lord is at work. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. One final thing I would like to add about the shaking of the heavens and the shaking of kingdoms is that this idea, particularly rooted in Jesus, applies both to personal kingdoms and to nations' kingdoms. And Revelation will do a beautiful job of bringing both to bear on our lives. But I felt after re-listening to that sermon myself and realizing that I chose to apply it mostly to the personal kingdoms that people find themselves needing to deal with in their own personal lives, these themes also surface in nations and in systems and in things on a much bigger scale than individuals that will also need to be addressed as the kingdom of God relates with them. And so we will again have time in future episodes to look at those in more detail, but I wanted to help you make that connection first here. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm very encouraged by all of that. Got a new review and a rating this week from uh, from a person who's just listening in, and that's always an encouragement. So please give me a rating. Give me a review. That helps other listeners just like you find the podcast. I think I need to get a few more reviews on um, Apple Podcasts before it'll begin to pop up a little more on Google searches. So if you're listening in, please write me a review, encourage a friend to do the same. If you have questions, particularly after this episode or any episode, you can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, Until then, talk to you soon.